You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast, moving a little bit more slowly post-MJBiz. My name is Manish and I'm joined today by the man with no plan, the man who is a rock star at any cocktail party. His name is Abby. Oh, there's a few too many cocktail parties for this one, Manish, for sure. <laughs> and yes, moving a little bit slow is the way to put it. I'm, you know, it's yeah. funny too because the episode is going to come out late. And it's literally just because we couldn't get our act together the last two days. And I'm yeah. sure there's a good amount of that happening across the country for the cannabis industry. You know, it'd be interesting to see if there was actually like uh, a, a, an, an impact in trading volume post MJ biz. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're joking when the stocks are going down is like people have to pay for their Vegas bills as they're leaving. So like, <laughs> they're blowing out their MSO stock to do it. Yeah, exactly. How you feeling, Abby? Uh, I, I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling fine. I'm a little bit, um, you know, it's, well, we're back in, or I'm back in Toronto here and the weather has been a little bit gloomy, but, uh, it's looking like a sunny day today, but, uh, no, aside from that, it was, it was strange leaving the desert and then coming back into the Arctic. So, you know, there's that. How about you? Wow. Back into the Arctic. I mean, if that's not a great name for this episode, I don't know what is. <laughs> the chilly winter. That's going to... That's in, that's on the horizon for us. That's, that's right. The long, dark winter of the cannabis yeah. industry. Well, you know, it's, look, I mean, it's first of all, I mean, it was just so incredible after like a year and a half of, you know, no conferences for any industry, right, to be able to go to Vegas and meet people and shake hands and really meet the people behind the industry. And, you know, one of the things I walked away with, Abby, was like just a, a really good feeling and validation of the fact that, yeah, Zoom is great. It, it's a new way of, of, you know, meetings and all that. But there really is no substitute to meeting people face to face and getting the, you know, flavor um, of a person or a team or a company in person. For sure. And I find, you know, there's a time and place for Zoom, but I find I retain a lot more when I meet somebody in person, whether it's just, you know, th there were some people where I, where I would have had, where I had met in zoom or on mm -hmm. zoom. And mm -hmm. when I met them in person, I was like, I couldn't recall meeting them at all. Um, but then after, you know, after you, you talk a little while, you see them again and again, you're like, oh, okay. Like I, I realized that my brain sort of, um, makes memories based off of situations. So for example, if I'm in a room, I'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, I know I met this person and this, 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 right. Something like that. And, and I, and it w it became extremely apparent during this whole MJ biz, I would say without, for, if it wasn't for my CRM, there are some, some people that I ran into that I was like, oh man, like, like I compl I'd completely forgotten that I had met them in Zoom. Like it, it was a two way street, right? They had forgotten that they met me too. Right. And now after meeting you, they will never forget you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're like, oh wow. The guy off the walls. Yeah. Delete that Abby guy from my CRM, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He introduced himself five times to me. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about 
a debrief of the conference. Um, you know, the the kind of some some before and after takeaways of how much the industry has evolved. You know, the people behind the companies, um, the MSOs, and and what a night and day change it's been for them in only you know a year and a half since the last conference. We're going to be talking about a lot of the negatives actually that we we took away. Um, and, and painting a little bit of a, a bleak picture in the short term for people, um, which I know is always everybody's favorite topic. And then, but then we're going to finish with what I think the positives are, um, kind of more medium term, and how those two things kind of weigh against each other, and how we strategize, right? How we think about that, and how we adjust our portfolios. Uh, you know, as, as we say, you cannot control the uh, the winds of the ocean, but you can adjust your sails. So we'll sort of talk about the strategy related to that, for sure. Sounds exciting. So I, I guess first things first, you know, Abby, we were, we were talking about this and I couldn't help but feel nostalgic and talk about, you know, the fact that you and I met at a conference just like this in Toronto two and a half years ago uh, in, in early 2019. And it was such a stark contrast to look at how in 2019, I mean, that meeting that conference was really defined by euphoria and easy money and everybody and their mothers showing up to pitch you some kind of strangely weirdly related to cannabis kind of deal um which today i mean is almost laughable uh but and and they'd say well here's a pill that you know helps you you know with your cannabis hangover and we're valuing ourselves at only 10 million dollars and then right. the name of the company would have been Hangover Can, <laughs> yeah, something yeah, canned. Right. Everything had a can on it. That that's was one right. thing that I noticed. That basic, pretty much most of the companies I they don't have can on it anymore. We they didn't really even have green pitch decks. That's right, except for actually can the drink. They were they were there, so, <laughs> except for them. They're legit though. Yeah, yeah. But um, but the funny thing is, you know, it's easy to laugh at that now. But they would go, "We're raising this amazing idea at ten million, and you and you know, I would go. You know, it's only ten million, right? If this was on the CSE, this would be maybe forty million today, right? So, yeah, so that kind of uncertainty and easy money and you know funding these wild ideas—that was that's really how I think about that first conference that we were at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I would say we, we we could even take that one step further, but you're right. It was it was essentially the wild west. There was too much capital there, chasing too few deals, and the deals that were there. Um, we're just all over the place. The mm-hmm. one thing that you talked about there in that, you know, ten ten million dollar example is that if this was on the CSC, it'd be trading much higher. Mm-hmm. That was probably never once said in this conference at MJ BizCon. Mm. You know, for if you met with any private companies, it was never that, hey, when are you guys going to go public? Right. Right. I never had any of those conversations. Well, not any. I didn't have I didn't have majority of my conversations did not circulate around a like a liquidity event being going public on the CSC. Uh, you know, it's so, f- I didn't even think about that, but it's so funny that you say that, Abby, because you're right. I mean, that was the first and second question out of my mouth in, in early 19, right? When are you going public? What's the go public strategy? Mm-hmm. You know, I think, again, going back to the idea of maturity of the industry, it, it's so much more focused on, you know, is this a real business? Give me your business strategy. You know, wh- where are you guys in terms of EBITDA and cash flow and this and that? And And that just speaks to, you know, if you've been around and had a couple spins of the wheel, like you've been burned enough by that now, right? Mm-hmm. So hopefully you've learned and hopefully you are um, asking better questions. The other thing too is, you know, a lot of this conference for me was meeting people who 
uh, you know, we've talked to before, we have a relationship with, and just kind of deepening that relationship. There wasn't a ton of, um, hey, this is a brand new concept or brand new idea that nobody's ever heard of before. I mean, maybe it's a new operator in a different state, but there wasn't so much of these like pie in the sky, this is going to change the world kind of idea. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll have to disagree with that. Um, it wasn't to the extent that it was in 2019. Right, I would say 2019, 98% of the companies were that, right? And the other 2% were Canadian LPs, right? Whereas <laughs> the good stuff. Yeah, the good stuff. <laughs> now, obviously, the pie in the sky, I'd say was, well, there's probably about 10% of the companies there that were still, that had that type of, um, you know, not obscure, but out there business model. Okay, fair enough. Right? I didn't meet with any Canadian LPs. Right? Mm-hmm. That was the biggest thing. I didn't see any of I didn't, them. I didn't even see them there. Exactly. So that was the one thing that I really put, like really noticed. Um, and I would say one thing that I that really noticed, and it'd be great to come back to this episode next year when we go back to MJ Biz, would be the, in 2019, the conversation was, when are you going public? Mm-hmm. Most of my conversations around this time were, how are you guys getting into a limited license state? Or how are you guys going to compete with the MSOs? Hmm. Right? That, that's what I saw mo- more and more of. Um and that's and there, and there were some companies that I met with that did have business models like you know you and I were just talking about um, there was somebody who was making colorful vapes or sorry not colorful vapes colorful pre rolls right and I was like well mm-hmm. how do, how's this how's this a differentiation strategy and it ended up being a marketing play um, but but they they were still there yeah fair enough fair enough and and look I, I mean I guess also it you know depends on who we're meeting with right I mean maybe mm-hmm. it was just the I filled my calendar not with that stuff, right? So maybe I just wasn't as exposed to it. But also, I just do think that because the industry has matured and because we, you know, in 19, a lot of it was about the tell me story. We, we talk about this a lot, how it shifted from tell me to show me. And the tell me story, it, there was just so much uncertainty. So if you met with the MSOs in 19, early 19, they still couldn't really show you uh, tons of revenue and EBITDA. I mean, they could show mm-hmm. you revenue and growth, uh, but now, you know, 2020 was really such a, you know, kind of pivotal turning year for the MSOs where they just started spitting out cash flow. And I think that really established itself and established them as a winning business model. Right. And I think that that show me element of the industry has flushed out a mm-hmm. lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of promoters, a lot of fast talkers. Uh, and I think that's great. And and by the way, I don't know if it's a year from now or two years from now or three years from now, but I can tell you we will go back to an MJ biz where the market has heated up again, probably with you know on the heels of some kind of uplisting event. And all those people or people like them will come back and they will be pitching you all the other kind of, you know, game changing deals that uh, and, and, you know, people will be wondering how fast can this go public? Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I I think you're right. I mean, that that would be pretty funny to see because then it would be not not the CSC, but it would be like the Nasdaq or the NYSE that they would be pitching, right? Right. Which, have, which has much much more uh, stringent, um, what do you call it, criteria to get listed. Fair. So it's it's definitely something uh, to 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 keep an eye on. Um, and right, and a good point. And and so, sort of moving on to the next point, um, what was really fascinating about the conference was to be able to meet the people behind the companies, right? And to, to be able to really get, you know, we talk about the story behind the story. Like that story is so much better colored in when you're actually meeting the teams. And, you know, some people we've met before, but I feel like the relationships have gotten so much deeper over the last two years. Uh, and, you know, there's some companies that a year ago 
were, were not really thought of or talked about that suddenly today are top contenders, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and so so it's fascinating to see the development that happens in only you know one or or one year or a year and a half. Uh, and I really think again, all credit to the MSOs. I mean, who've who've proven out their business model. This was really uh, you know their opportunity to to come out and show their stuff. And I think there was a lot of, um, I think the market really appreciated who they were this time around. Uh, and for us as investors, it was a very different conversation we were having with them this time around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, before we get too much deeper into this, I do want to say one thing, you know, we have to keep in mind that I, I don't know how, how, cause I know you and I, we had different schedules or how often you walk the floor mm-hmm. for MJ BizCon. Um, you know, it's more of an industry Tar- it's more of a it's a it's a conference that's geared more towards industry participants so you'll see like mm-hmm. a lot of like you know extraction equipment companies uh light companies all that stuff um so the floor is actually not a good gauge of what okay. this episode of what you and i are talking about sure right yeah. a lot of what you're talking about is you know you personally filling up your meetings you reaching out to your network and cultivating these one-on-one meetings right so that just to bear that in mind for anybody who goes into mj bizcon be like oh i didn't get any of this out of it um this is just sort of what like Manish and I took away from it personally, and we both approached it very differently. Totally, and you know when you're on the floor, it it. Uh, by the way, uh, thanks to MJ Biz and like congratulations to them for throwing a hell of an event after you know uh, a long time off. Uh, when you go on the floor, it is massive, and mm-hmm. you really walk away being like, "Who are all these people? Like, <laughs> like who are all these companies? Like, and and what you get an appreciation for is how big the industry actually is." Right. It's not just as an investor, you know, we talk to right the head of IR or the CEO or the C suite, but there is, you know, each company now has thousands and thousands of employees. And then beyond them, there's, you know, thousands of vendors they're working with. And and it goes on and on. Right. So the industry has ballooned to such a size, right? I mean, doing, you know, twenty-five billion of just cannabis sales, forget all the ancillary stuff that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fascinating to see how much of a real industry it's become. And that didn't happen overnight, but I mean, the size of it is just undeniable now. For sure. And then you also get to see all the different facets of the industry as well, right? Like, excuse me, prior to going to any MJ biz, I would have never considered lights to be part of um, the cannabis industry, even though it's a very like integral part of cultivation, right? It's just not something that I I considered exactly. Or I mean, who thinks about security or insurance or, you know, like that's kind of driving ovens or Exactly. Until you actually see what 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 it is that they do, um, right. and you know, I, I I was very fortunate. I got to walk the floor with with a couple of different people and people with different different skill sets and backgrounds, um, and each one of them just sort of showed me something different about every single like mm. not every single stall, but how they what, what they took away. Right, like I walked I walked around the floor with a with a cultivator, um, and his perspective versus you know I also walked with an extractor versus their perspective were completely different. Right, uh, and then I walked around with with a couple of investors, and you know how many how many times did you walk? the floor abby i got my steps in i'll tell you that <laughs> i got my steps in i walked the floor probably four on four separate occasions for about two hour intervals each wow good for yeah. you yeah it was good uh yeah I, I would say i probably did two full like the, and this is how big the floor is even like the the eight hours that i basically spent on the floor i probably only did two laps on it completely wow 
That's that, it's massive. That is wild. So so talking about you know the people and and meeting them. You know one thing when we do construction financing, right? When we're arranging construction construction financing for people, um, unlike buying like an investment property, there's a lot of focus on who are these people. What is their track record? What's their experience? Because when you're evaluating, you know, a, let's say you're building a condo. You can have a great location. You can have a great plan. You can have everything lined up nicely. But if the team is not good and, and you start to doubt their ability to execute, uh, nobody wants to have to take over a half-built building, right? And so there's a tremendous amount of scrutiny on who the people are to the point where you know sometimes you'll have a project that's not even that great. But if the people are strong enough, you know, then financiers are willing to get behind it because they have that level of comfort and trust. And by the same token, I mean, that matters so much in the cannabis industry. I mean, what is cannabis if not an industry under construction? And so to be able to see the people, to be able to talk to them and get the feel of them, um, I mean, that helped fill in the story considerably. And, you know, you hear stories about some of the characters in our industry and to be able to meet with them personally, it really helps you understand uh, how they might operate. And remember, this matters a lot, not only in execution and operations, but in M&A, right? When they're meeting with potential people that they're going to acquire, you know, people need to like them. They need to believe mm-hmm. in them. They need to want to sell their business to them, right? They need, and then beyond that, I mean, IR, other investors need to get excited about the story. So that's why it was, I think it's really, really critical to uh, meet with people and get that flavor of them um, to help really guide your decisions on investments. For sure, for sure. And I always find whenever we go to these conferences, <clears throat> one of the most helpful things, uh, it is, it's further to your point of meeting the people. Um, it's that when you do meet the people, it sort of humanizes whether it's a, a logo you're looking at, whether it's a stock ticker you're looking at or anything, right? Um, you start looking at it from a different perspective. So, for example, if you're looking at a, a pitch deck and you recognize a logo of some of, of a CEO that you met, it's no longer just like a logo on, on the deck anymore. You're like, oh, yeah, I do remember meeting John Smith at this point. And you know what? Maybe he would actually not like this team because of this, this, and this, right? It goes kind of to what you're saying about really understanding who right. the person is behind it. Um, and I can't stress this enough. You hit it right on the head about the M&A because – M&A is obviously happening in this industry and it's going to continue to accelerate, especially as the stronger gets stronger and the weaker are having a harder time finding financing. Um, it's going to be extremely, extremely important. If you can look at a deal now and say, hey, I met John Smith and I also met Jane and they actually, I don't think they would get along. They looked mm-hmm. very, they, they, not not they looked very different, but they <laughs> acted very different. They, you know, they had different philosophies on how to run a company, right? And so you got to remember that culture gets like, ingrained throughout the entire company. So when it does, when, when that marriage does happen, um, there could be some issues. And people ask us all the time, right, about, hey, what do you think about this company and this company combining? And, you know, it's fun to sit around and look at footprints and, and look at who fits together, right? I mean, that's that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to your point, Abby, is re- it becomes about personalities, right? Does this person want to give up their company to this person and share the, you know, give up the chair, right? So, I exactly. mean, that becomes a huge stumbling block when it comes to M&A. Right. And one thing, yeah, right. and, and one thing to to further on on that M and A part is, does, it's not only does this person want to give up the company to this person, it's does this person want to give up this comp- the their company to this person, but also stay on for a certain amount of time to help the transition, right? How impactful, like how how much time is that, like that the acquiree CEO's time really going to be uh, be put towards that company now that he or she is no longer running it? 
right? That's the one thing that I really noticed when I talked to a lot of these, uh, a lot of these companies that are getting acquired. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. And so, you know, one thing I just want to say overall is I think people should feel really good about the quality of people who are running these top tier MSOs. I don't just mean the big five. I mean, if you look across the top 10, 15 MSOs, these are hard businesses to run. And, you know, without, you know, almost across the board, the people running them are exceptional business people. I mean, this is an industry where I would not want to compete against any of these people. I'll tell you that. Like, I'm happy to bet on them. I would not want them to show up in my neighborhood, you know, running, uh, you know, putting up a, a business across the street for me doing what I do because because uh, it would not be a good outcome for any of us. I'll tell you that. <laughs> and and wh- why, why do you say that? Is that just because of their like the, the results that they've been able to achieve? Or is that because there was an intangible quality where you met them? And you were like, hey, like, you know, I really like this person because of A, B, and C. Well, you know, it just depends on on the person, the business and all that, right? But like, you know, back in, in 19, it was really about uh, a hope and a prayer. It was about who can na- uh, navigate regulatory, who can sell and raise capital, and who can put together, you know, the best pitch deck with the best dream, right? And it, it wasn't so much about execution. It was a lot of uh, and I'm talking kind of the Canada landscape more, but mm-hmm. also in the U.S., right? We just we just didn't know what was going to make sense and what was going to work. Well, mm-hmm. the people who are leaders today, they had the vision. They were the ones like who, they were the ones uh, who said, "Look, it doesn't make sense to you know chase after a European asset for hundreds of millions, you know, at that time, right?" Um, it was people who who really kind of stuck to their knitting and said, "No, we're going to stay in this state or in this region or in these regions." Uh, we're going to raise capital, even though the comp- the industry is federally illegal and it's not easy, right? We're not going to take the easy money and just list something uh, on the CSE that what the bankers want, right? Which is a trap that a lot of companies fell into. Um, these are people who really had the vision, the discipline, the execution chops, uh, have navigated some really, really rough waters to be able to get to where they are today. And what they have proven out is that the MSO model works and it works really well when it's executed by the right people in the right places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you, you know, there's there's a lot of things in there, but it takes a special kind of person to be able to be a five-tool player and to be able to bring together all of these elements. And uh, I can tell you across the world, I don't think there's that many people. I think the people who are running the top cannabis companies, um, I think you're seeing a lot of that in there. And by the way, it's not just the person at the top, right? I mean, we talk about, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, uh, truly, for example, you think about Kim Rivers, but there's a whole bench of talent to run these four, five, 6,000 person companies. Mm-hmm. It's not all one person. And, you know, that was one of the coolest parts is to be able to not just meet the CEOs of the company, which is great, but to be able to meet the people around them right in the in the C suite because that also gives you a flavor of who they surround themselves with and and who is essential for the success of that company mm-hmm. um, and what you find is wow not only is this person great you know the the two or three people they've surrounded themselves with they have complementary skill sets you know they they are you know very high EQ so even if you know one person has flaws these other people kind of make up for it and more right so i think actually one you know tip I've had to the IR um, departments of these companies is guys like 
showcase your bench. There's a deep bench of talent here. When you have a great executive who's helping run the company every day, show that to investors because it gives us so much more confidence when we see it's not all about one person, but there's really a bench of talent here. Yeah, that's very well said. You know, whenever I look at an MSO, I do typically think of just whoever's in the C-suite, right? And I never put thought to, you know, how methodical they were in building out their team. And also like, you know, like um, somebody said something that was really interesting that we'll get to a little bit later, but they said, look, when stocks go down and they go down a lot and they go down for a long period of time, right? Like where we are today, mm-hmm. people start to wonder, am I the sucker in the room? Did I screw up? You know, and then they get doubt in their minds, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of the thing that's, I think, frustrating or hard for the MSOs is that investors remain spoiled for choice. And there's so many good options out there. And and for a lot of the, you know, the great private deals that we looked at, Abby, it was like, okay, sure, this I buy that this will triple, but also these top MSOs will also triple, right? So why should I do this deal with you today? Right. So yeah. and that that's a very tough place to be if you're a private company. Um, so, so the you know in the public sphere, they're fighting for the same investors, and, th- and that's challenging. Um, so, part of how they can differentiate themselves is by showing their bench, right? And when you when you talk to not only one person, you talk to a second and a third executive. Uh, you talk to an executive from a company that sold to a company, and you're impressed with all of them. You go, wow, like. You know, it helps alleviate that doubt in your mind. You're like, wow, this company really has their stuff together. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and, and look, it's 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 a it's a very it's a very important thing that you're you're bringing up, and something that you know I got to do better at uh, to um, look at. Right? Um, it's more like I said, looking at just the C-suite. I still associate whatever. MSO or what whatever company with just with just their CEO. And you're right by having a broader conversation with the executive team, you can see some more. So my, my question to you is this, because obviously you did this like very well when you were at, at MJ BizCon. When you met, <clears throat> let's say you met with, you know, um, I don't know if there's any companies that you want to talk about that you met with, but let's say if you met with, you know, more than one executive at, at that company, did you mm-hmm. find that there was like a grouping or a common common commonality amongst them versus when you met some with somebody else? So for example, let's say if you met with, you know, AYR or, or you met with TrueLeave and you met, you know, their C-suites, like, did you notice two polar difference, differentiating factors between them? Are you saying between the companies or within the companies? So within the companies and then differences between the companies. Yeah, look, so similarities all, within and then differences uh, between. Yeah, look, all these companies are different, right? I mean, it just, it starts at the very top and it goes down. So mm-hmm. it, it it's it's interesting to see, and by the way, a lot of these meetings, which, which again, I love about these in-person events, a lot of these meetings happen randomly, right? You look over, you know, you're at the cocktail mixer and you look over and there's, you know, CFO of a company sort of just standing by themselves and you're like, all right, well, I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to go talk to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you get a flavor of who they are and, and it's, it, you know, ends up being a great conversation. Right. And, um, to, to your point, Abby, I mean, totally often very different people, different um, setups within the companies. It's not, there's no one model I think that works. It's not, you don't look at a company and go, oh, like uh, this is how it should be done. The CEO should be like this and the CFO should be like this and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think company by company, person by person, the team gets filled out differently, right? So, um, and my point being that when you talk to some of the people 
around the CEO, right? And you sort of get, get you know, you figure out kind of how the CEO operates and then how the people around them operate. You see, oh, like, hey, this is a complementary skill set to the CEO. Interesting, right? And the way they look at this is a little bit different. And that gives you really good appreciation because you worry, hey, is this company missing X, Y, or Z? And you talk to the team around them and you go, no, I think actually they figured it out as an as a whole, as an aggregate. Right. I'll, I'll tell you where my question was stemming from because sure. you did a good job answering it. It goes back to when you're talking about the 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 attractiveness or the unattractiveness of private companies and the attractiveness of, pri- of public companies given sure. their respective valuation. When you're looking at these broader teams, because when I met with some of these private companies, I was so impressed with the quality that the private companies had, mm. whether it was a grower, whether it was um, you know an executive, etc. Just I was I was just shocked. I was like, wow, like you know, you're running a private company. If you were public in 2019 or or even you know in February, you'd be worth like billions of dollars, right? <laughs> sure. <clears throat> Not the case right now. Um, but I look at that and I say, okay, you know what? There might still be some uncovered gems in the private market that haven't necessarily gone public that could actually give these MSOs a, a, like a, 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 a run for their money, right? Like you said yes. you wouldn't want these MSOs showing up at your neighborhood. You know, there are some private companies, if you could take their team and stack your team against them, I think they would do a great job in fi- fighting off some of these MSOs. Yes. And, and you know, actually, you're bringing us to a great point, which, which I'll transition to, which is basically... Uh, this was the first conference I've been to where the MSOs stood out as the clear winners, right? And everybody was looking at them. And, you know, it's because, like, if we had a conference last year, that probably also would have been the case, right? But we right. we went forward a whole year from there with no conference. So, you know, when the thing in business is um, anything that, that ends up being amazing, you know, people start to copy it, right? Mm-hmm. So so the the sort of... MSO 2.0s, the financial companies like an Ascend or an Air that were built kind of on the second wave of the industry, um, mm. a lot of like a lot of what they were doing was copying what was working for the first wave, right, of the GTIs right. and the Crescos. Uh, but they were still early enough to the game that there was a lot of opportunity, right? Now, there's a third wave, in my opinion, of MSOs that are kind of under the surface. And so, you know, to your point, Abby, some of these are very impressive operators. Some of them have, you know, nice footprints. Um, but you know, like, listen, they're not in some of the key states, you know, it's, it's a different market out there, uh, sure. but there, there are a lot of good MSOs below the surface. And one thing I noticed that I don't think people are talking about is the fact that there are a lot of smart finance people that are building their own MSO. So they are either, you know, heavily investing in an MSO or they are, you know, cobbling together their own, or they're trying to put their stamp on one of them because what they're seeing is, Hey, this model really works. We want to have our own, you know, when the time is right. Um, And I think, you know, we talk about there being a big 10 or 15. I think there's more like 25 good MSOs kind of lurking in the shadows. um, That are not public. Well, yeah, I'm saying 25 total though, like like 15 plus another 10, maybe another 15. So like maybe there's 25 or 30 total. Um, And to your point, Abby, like they're actually good companies, a lot of them, like most of them. And so what that means, you know, I was kind of thinking about it. It's kind of like the SPAC boom, right? Where every famous person wanted a SPAC because they figured out it was a good way to make money. Um, That's kind of how I look at these MSOs. Like there's a lot of MSOs kind of lurking in the shadows. And if all of these MSOs went public tomorrow, it would not be good for the market. Like it would be a lot of supply uh, while we're still light on the demand for the stocks. So investors are spoiled for choice. 
And it looks like they could be even more spoiled for choice, depending on how things go in the next few months. Yeah, I mean, that's that 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 definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, with that, would you still think that there's I, I mean, like, I don't know how you look at it right now. Do you think that there's still too much capital chasing too few deals? Or do you think that that would sort of add to the um, obviously would add to the supply side, right? Yeah, I mean, there's clearly not too much capital chasing too much deals, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. that's or not enough. Sorry, there's pro- there's clearly too many great deals out there with not enough buyers stepping up. I mean, we see mm-hmm. that in the public markets. We see that with low volumes. Um, you know, now on the flip side, the debt markets is exactly what you just described, right? There's too much money, and and I, there's, there's probably enough good deals, but it's pushing rates down, right? right that's why you're right. seeing a rapid decline of of rates. Um, you know, I think I think Verano did a, a debt offering like I think it was even earlier this year at like nine seventy five plus discounts, and mm-hmm. they just refied it at eight and a half, like in the same year, right? I mean that is that is mind boggling if you think about cost of capital. Yeah, yeah. right. So especially from a year ago too, right? Not even a full year. Yeah, though. six I months mean, ago actually. Yeah, right. it's crazy, yeah. right? So like if you if you extrapolate this, which you know doesn't work, but if you extrapolate this, they're going to be getting free money in two years, right? So <laughs> so that's not how things work, but it, it just. As somebody said recently, they they were like, um, "Listen, somebody's wrong. <laughs> like, it's either the debt guys are wrong or the equity guys are wrong. Yeah, but like, true. some one of these things is not making sense, right?" One one thing that I do want to say when you're talking about these, you know, copycat industries and the twenty five or or the the total of that, there's more MSOs than what we know in the public eye. Um, you know, when you met with any of these guys, did you notice that okay, a the caliber they they had a, they had the the same caliber of talent, if not better, but they were working with less money. And they were yeah. able to build out facilities or, or mm-hmm. compete with with a lot less capital. Yeah, I mean, look. So both those things are true. I mean, the the difference I would just say is that like some of the first of all, it's hard to note, right? Because some of these guys you're meeting for the first time, so it's really tough on your first meeting to gauge mm-hmm. what's going on. I mean, some of these companies we've known for like one, two plus years, right? So we've got to see them and ex- see them execute and see if they can do what they say. The other thing is a lot of these companies are just in tougher states, like mm-hmm. their footprints aren't as good. So um, it's just harder for them to get the same level of juice out of their states, right? Um, but but don't get it wrong. I mean, there's some really strong operators um, in the background. Uh, again, going back to that comment about the C-suite and building at your bench, it's just like if you only have one or two kind of great operators and you don't have the bench around you, it's hard to build a really big company, right? So but again, they're they're in growth mode, so maybe as they expand, they'll start to bring on more bench strength, right? But what I would mm-hmm. say is, uh, it's really hard for them. Like, good luck getting into New York, right? If you're not one of the biggest MSOs, because any available license is going to be a total bake off. Right. And like, I wouldn't want to compete with like you know Verano <laughs> or like TrueLeave to try to win that license, right? It's very very difficult to try to win that competition. Right. So weren't, weren't you saying that there are some financing partners who are putting together capital to pick, to sort of create these deals, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. True. That's a fair point. Are but, you, but, see, sorry, but again, ahead. again, if you just assume that, right, even if they're super deep pocketed, it's really hard to compete with a multi-billion dollar public company that yeah, has, who has equity. Yeah. Who has their stock essentially as currency, right? Well, and their stock is so attractive, right? When you're trading right. at five or six times next year's EBITDA with more growth baked in and you have eight states, nine states you can point to and be like, hey, come look at my facilities. I'm killing it across my entire footprint. Like, 
it's hard to compete with that. Even if you throw money at somebody, right? the stock is so attractive if they give you 50-50 like cash stock, it's hard to compete, right? So that's all For I'm sure. saying is there's some good companies out there. I think the competitive competitive advantage of being one of the biggest companies is huge. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense, which makes sense, you know. And so let's let's talk about, you know, you brought up, so we, we kind of segue nicely into how this is, you know, as I'm meeting with all these future MSOs, I'm like, ooh, like what happens if all these companies go public, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and so as I'm thinking about this, I do want to say, uh, so all the companies, by the way, are in their quiet period. So they don't tell you anything about their, you know, financials, obviously, because they can't. But I will tell you just from the mood of talking to other investors and talking to operators, um, a lot of the negatives of the industry were sort of confirmed to me on this trip. So l- let me okay. explain. Yeah. Um, we're looking forward to Q3, which the results should be coming out kind of in the next two to three weeks. Um, I think it's it's almost across the board going to be softer results. I mean, when you look at the key markets, uh, Pennsylvania, um, f- I mean, Florida, like Q3 is the price war quarter, right? I mean, that is the the big, uh, scary, you know, price discounting across all the top operators in that quarter. Um, you know, mass is even starting to get more cultivation coming online and, and prices will compress. Um, Illinois is kind of holding in steady and it, it actually had an okay Q3, but the sales growth has flatlined. Uh, and these new licenses look like they're going to keep getting delayed by this, uh, by the judge and, and, and all that. So if it takes another year to get those licenses out, there is more cultivation coming online. It will get more competitive. So yes, these have been phenomenal businesses. I think they will continue to be amazing or let's say great businesses. Um, but you know they tick down from phenomenal to great. And that means margin competition. That means compression. That means slowing sales. And just the, the, the sheer size of these companies is so big now that it's very hard for them to get the same level of growth, probably impossible to get the same level of growth uh, because they're just so large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which makes sense, right? You, you, you see that in, in, in typically in, in every other industry, like you're not going to see, actually, you know what, maybe right now with where valuations are, you could, you could still see like a nice double uh, from here. But like, you know, if truly starts doing like, you know, a hundred million dollars a quarter, you're not gonna get the same re-rating that you did back in what early or like late 2019. Well, that's the thing, right? Now it's at 300 million top line a quarter, mm-hmm. right? With the combined company. So for it to double, it's like we, you know, you need something big, right? So Florida, for example, flipping wreck, that's the huge, huge prize, right? But mm-hmm. um, without that, like it just gets more challenging. Like there's still going to be great businesses. Uh, but the the reason I'm, you know, well, first of all, it's interesting. But second of all, you know, Abby, we're going to get to test the theory now about what happens in, in down markets, right? I mean, these companies when they were killing their financials um, recently, right? Like Q2 had amazing results. They didn't get a lot of love for it. But no. when they when they have sort of a soft quarter, right? Will they get punished for it? And I don't have the answer to that question, by the way. I'm just saying, expect to see some Q3 softness across the board. That's what I'm taking away from from my conversations. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that, that's one, it's a very stark reality that's uh, around the corner, right? And so now later on top of that, now we're going to get gonna get a little bleak here, but later on top of that, the fact that uh, a lot of the retail investors are still expecting safe to happen through the NDAA. Um, you know, our political correspondent, JP, uh, he had a post, which I will link in the episode, uh, talking about, look, guys, like 
it ain't going to happen. It's just, sure, there's a tiny probability, but it doesn't look likely that we're getting that safe passage through the NDAA. I think the NDAA passes in November. So there's another sort of negative catalyst, the wake up call for people who, you know, were, were kind of on the hope train um, about that happening. And then, you know, again, layer on top, like we have more supply of stocks. We have the same buyer pool out here, right? So investors remain really spoiled for choice. And then on the fundamental side, you know, New Jersey is kind of the next big catalyst, in my opinion. That looks like it's going to be delayed till early next year. And I even heard some people say it might be as late as April of next year, which is like another six months from now. And like it starts, you know, and that sort of all those negatives sort of pile up and get you to tax loss selling season in late November, December. Yeah, it's just going to be like it's just going to be one thing after another, more or less. Yeah, this, listen, this is not a prediction because anyone who listens know I, I'm horrible at predicting what will happen in the short term, and you really never know. All I'm saying is when you look forward a little bit, a little bit, a couple months, you go, ooh, there's there's a couple of things here which are not the rosiest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? That's true. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say when you, when you were talking about you know uh, the same amount of buyers for the for uh, with within the industry, the, the capital would typically be getting re- recycled. I think a lot of people are still holding because they have such high quality names. Uh, you know, you might see some, some tax loss selling, but the money that does come in, I think, is going to go back into buying the, the top quality names, right? Like, why would you take on? I mean, you know, I, I know I was arguing the opposite point earlier today, but mm-hmm. I would say, why would you take on the risk of buying a private as opposed to holding a, a public right now, right? If you got like you know some fresh capital that's sitting on the on, on the sidelines, it had to be extremely compelling. Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. And I think what what will happen is, uh, like, even I was in a weird place the other day when I was looking at some of the names, and I'm like, "Ooh, do I like sell this name for tax loss purposes and reallocate this way?" But then I'm like, "Wait, but I'm now I'm getting confusing myself because this name is so cheap, I would want to buy it, right?" But like, tax loss selling is a legitimate strategy that you you know. So like. and we'll get into this a little bit later, but like, I'm not trying to look, I learned my lesson last year with the COVID shakeout in terms of trying to time the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm just not willing to like, try to move to cash and, you know, play the dips and stuff like that. I mean, what I think you could see people do though, is reallocate. So they go, look, I'll sell a to buy B. So I'll take the loss on a, that's the tax loss thing. I'll lock in and I'll buy B instead. Right? right, and they're uh, comparable quality companies where both valuations look interesting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's you know all of these come together, and, and what I come back to is what that person said in that meeting, where where when stocks go down, people start to wonder, "Am I the sucker in the room?" Right, and I think you will have people, especially because this NDAA thing, and and this is what you know we were warning about is people really get their hopes up on these things, and and they don't listen to the nuance of you know, maybe can this, et cetera, they, they just get stuck with this is going to happen. Oh, this is the next thing to get excited about. Um, and then the shorts come off for two days and the stocks go up and people go, oh, like the market must know something. And they get really excited again. And then so this this door swinging kind of violently um, back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, it's not healthy, right? Because it gets people really excited and then it gets them really depressed. And then they sell their stocks at a low and they're like, oh, screw this industry, I'm out. So all I'm, all I'm saying is, again, it's not a prediction. I'm just saying be prepared that it could get pretty bumpy. And I'm not saying I hope it does, uh, but it could. So that's something I would just be aware of sort of going forward into the next few months. 
Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, it's not the most positive thing, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's the reality. Yeah, it's it's the reality. You know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a positive spin as you're talking about it, but I'm like, no, there isn't really. No, well, look, I, offness, <laughs> delayed in markets. Um, I, I have some positives here too, but I, on that point though, you know, for example, on JP's post, JP had this like beautifully written post about, look, this is why I think this, and this is how I see it going. And I mean, this is a guy who works on K Street, has worked on the Hill, and somebody just goes, Oh, nice, man. Thanks for the uh, the FUD. Nice bearish post. And like, <laughs> it's just like like some people are so totally cooked with how they think about stocks where it's like, hey, what are you doing saying anything negative? I don't care if it's true or false, but other people are going to read this and then they're going to be bearish. So don't do it. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you – I mean if, if you were – like people are accusing the hedge funds of manipulating and, and you know, you know pu- pumping out all this negativity – it's like, aren't you doing the opposite if you're telling people to only be positive, right? I mean, we're trying to get to what we think is the truth. You know, it doesn't mean we're right, but we're trying to be honest about what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, right, like that is what will get us to the promised land by making good decisions, right? So um, I, I give all respect to JP for that post. Uh, I, I, I think he's got it bang on. Um, but now let's flip to the other side, which is like – his point was, look, I think SAFE is going to get done. I think, you know, these guys who pointed out the NDAA pathway, I think they're right. I think it'll get done through this pathway, but not through the national defense bill. It'll get done through some other random bill, you know, early next year, mid next year before the midterms. So that kind of puts a cap on it before the spring. Um, and, you know, that obviously for us, that is the ultimate prize. That's what everybody wants because that opens up capital market access. And then we can support 15 MSOs. We can support 30 MSOs at that point, right? Because the capital will come flooding in. And and the kind of the last point on that is we are literally a drop in the bucket of how much capital I believe will come into this industry. There are literally billions of dollars that will flood into this industry once they are able to. And and I think mm-hmm. that is very exciting. It's just hard to figure out when that day is. And I would say this NJ BizCon was very telling of that as well, right? I think you, you talked about it earlier um, about uh, just the level of sophistication that you've sort of seen in it. Mm-hmm. But if you looked at some of the conversations that were sort of, I mean, I don't know, we, we obviously had different meetings, but when you were looking, when you were listening to some of the, the questions that were being asked, some of the talent that was there, some of the people you were running into at these uh, conference or at, at these uh, cocktail mixers, um, going back to the capital that you're talking about, they were with hedge funds, but they weren't, or not hedge funds, but they were with with institutional capital, whether it's mm-hmm. family office or whatever, buy side funds, but they weren't investing for their buy side fund. They were there investing personally. Right? That's very true. That's a great point. Yeah. And so like you look at somebody who's like, oh, hey, I manage, you know, two quarters of a billion dollars or, or something like that, you know, or sorry, a quarter billion dollars I mean, or something I mean, like that. I right? mean, billions. Some of these people literally manage billions. Yeah, exactly. And you ask them like, oh, well, you know, how much have you guys done? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I've personally bought half a million dollars of this, this, and this. And you ask them, well, what's your fund done? It's like, well, my fund hasn't been able to get into it yet. Oh, yeah. I can't even tell my fund I'm doing this. But but like me personally, <laughs> yeah. all the partners, we're putting money in. Exactly. Right? It's a big part of our net worth. You go, yeah. huh, that's kind of interesting. And that kind of shit goes to show you, like, like to your point, the amount of capital that's waiting in the sidelines and figuring out ways to get in without being yes. it b- before uplisting. So it, it is happening; it's leaking in slowly. Um, but once uplisting does happen, it will be like you know, it's it's unfathomable the amount of capital that we can see come in here. Yeah, totally. That's that's a that's a good way to put it. So uh, we'll talk about that. Go back to that in a second. But I think actually, you know, somebody said it very well. They said they said, look. 
it doesn't even make sense today to give guidance for 2022 because you're not getting the appreciation of it, right? You're not, the market's not giving you any love for having positive guidance. So why would I do it? Mm-hmm. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So on that point, I actually think the softness that we might see for Q3 and Q4, um, and by the way, Florida might be kind of turning around a little bit now that, you know, you're having the seasonal flip. So people coming back to Florida for the winter, um, you might see, you know, Florida kind of go the other way. Um, and you're already seeing the patient count sort of pick up a little bit uh, and Arizona as well. But um, I think the softness is actually okay, right? I mean, these companies aren't going to die. Like they're just going to grow a little bit slower uh, from from what they previously had. Mm-hmm. And the fact that New Jersey gets delayed it's actually not too bad because all we're doing is deferring the growth. It's not like the growth is not going to happen. It's just like instead of happening in Q4, maybe it hits in Q1 or Q2, right? And so if the market doesn't not paying attention to today anyway, then is it that bad if it gets pushed a little bit? You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not the end of the world. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe it's not so bad really, right? And I think once New Jersey hits, then investors start to turn their sights to New York. And- you know, I've sort of mentally said January 23 for New York. We might get lucky. It might happen faster. I mean, the the new commission is moving pretty quickly. So um, all I'm saying is if you start looking at the potential for safe in the first half of next year, New Jersey, and then people looking towards New York, you go, huh, that's a nice little, you know, domino effect. And we haven't even talked about the fact that, you know, we're only a year away from the 2022 elections. Mm-hmm. Well, Why is that important? It's important because there's a bunch of states that are going to be on the push to go legal and a bunch of important states. So I've I've written down here, Ohio has a strong legalization push. Pennsylvania, Missouri looks like it will be on the ballot. Maryland, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. So of those uh, six states, Ohio, PA, Missouri, and Maryland, those are all pretty important states. Ohio, Mm -hmm. PA, and Maryland uh, those those three, those are very limited license states that the MSO sort of dominate, mm-hmm. right? So the amount of growth that could happen just by flipping those three, that's really, really good, right? And no one's really talking about that yet. That's something that really excites me. We got a lot of that in 2020, right? From, from New mm-hmm. Jersey, Arizona, et cetera. So, uh, and for example, in PA, the Republicans have been constantly blocking that, you know, for years and years. You know, somebody we talk to, and this is just an opinion, but they go, look, like the Republicans don't want to have to run against this issue. They don't want it on the ballot because that makes them look bad. And then, you know, they have 20% or 25% of their party who's really opposed to it. So they, but they know it's overwhelmingly popular, right? Like there was an article recently that cannabis is more popular than Joe Biden in Maryland. And I'm like, guys, newsflash, cannabis is more popular than every politician in every state, right? Like they're like politicians don't poll at 60%. Cannabis does. So when you start like mapping it out, you go, look, I'm not saying we're gonna get all six states, but if you get even one or two of these big states, like that's really, really good for the industry. That's a huge tailwind for the industry. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it is nobody's really talking about it. Right. And nobody's really pricing it in. I like that. That's that's where I think we get a lot of juice as investors. Gotcha. For more states coming online. Oh, I mean, unquestionably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no, I, I, I get that because the market obviously gets gets larger. Um, I would look, listen, I, I think a lot of people aren't pricing it in because that's that that sort of catalyst has been upcoming for a long time. Right. Not those specific states, but it's always <clears throat> excuse me. It's always been 
what state's going to come online next, right? Eventually, you're going right. to get to a point where, you know, there's going to be saturation that happens. Um, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's, it's, it's extremely exciting. I think those states sure. that are coming online are, are critical, m- many of them being limited licenses, a lot of them just being centered more around the Midwest. You know, it's kind of just sort of mm-hmm. closes off the U.S. map quite quite nicely now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is definitely a lot of positives coming from it. But I think the reason that it's not getting priced in as much as, you know, you and I would like like it uh, to be is because it, it is something that's, that's sort of been said over and over and over again. Yeah, no, no, fair. And, and look, and like we said, like investors are on the show me side. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. we've heard about, you know, PA potentially going wreck for two or three years. Uh, but remember now, like around PA, you have New Jersey and New York both going wreck, right? So this is something that's like the train is coming, right? And people don't want to stand in the way of it. So all I'm saying is like when we talk about some of the negatives, um, one of the negatives is uh, is price compression and margins compressing because of increased uh, cultivation and competition, right? And then the medical market's maturing. Well, if PA flips wreck, that none of that matters anymore, right? Now it's a party. Now we don't. Now every gram of cannabis is being sold at a premium, and we're undersupplied again, mm-hmm. right? And so some of these companies have 12, 14, 18 stores in the state. PA becomes even better than Illinois for them. So that's my point. Is like, like yes, it's it's from a big picture, it's positive. But from a fundamental perspective, it fixes a lot of the problems that we're having too. Because when you have that hyper growth mode, it's great for all the companies, and they have a gigantic advantage over any new inco- new person coming right. in. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so last part here, and then we'll take a question. But um, what's the strategy of all this, right? So, basically, when I think about a big picture, you know, if if safe hits, guys, like we're great, and and you know. This is just a guess, but I do think we get safe first half of next year. And I think that leads to uplisting sort of, you know, early 23. So it takes, there's like a kind of a six, eight month lag, uh, but institutional investors will start to come in. Once they see that, say, that uplisting is coming, they will jump in. Keep in mind, safe does not equal uplisting. There's some stuff that has to happen, um, but I think it's close enough. I think we'll get it. That, that's my sort of feeling. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so if safe hits, you want a lot of MXO, MSO exposure, you know, we can argue about which ones and how much and what price. But I think all of the MSOs do really well. And then I think the private operators kind of go up with them, right? So uh, that's case number one. I think what you need to plan for is if you if you're sort of have a lot of MSOs, you need to think about what will succeed if SAFE doesn't pass. Because that really is sort of the nightmare scenario for us. We get all these negatives going into the end of the year, and then they somehow bungle SAFE. It doesn't pass, and we go into the midterms, mm-hmm. right? And then you might be looking at, a long time with no safe and that would suck right so that to me is sort of the negative scenario we need to plan for and you need to think about your portfolio what kind of deals are going to work um if safe does not happen what who will actually benefit if safe takes longer yeah that's true so those are the kind of deals you need to plan for and you know typically they're big board listed Nasdaq listed companies who are using the Nasdaq capital for the industry. Yeah, that's who will benefit for sure. You, you know you know who actually did a good job of talking about that was actually Jason. Um, mm. that was someone who's who who uh, chatted quite a bit about if you know if safe doesn't go through what hap- what what does end up happening with these companies. I know we're coming right. around to the more of the end, end of the episode but that's something that we, maybe you and I should talk about in more detail in another episode, right? Sure. Like, yeah, how would this affect Sorry, go ahead. I would say, you know, I had an idea a while ago to do maybe some some big board listed companies, like a deep dive into them. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, I mean, look, like it's not a like safe is good at the end of the day for the industry and we need it. But 
there are people who are succeeding because like IIPR's whole business model exists because safe uh, has not passed yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is true. There, there are definitely a lot of companies that would, that would uh, benefit from that. One Absolutely. of them was one that you mentioned a little while ago too. Which was what? Agrify. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. for another episode. We'll get into yeah. that. But um, okay, so so going back to that's sort of the strategy of you know how to break it break it down, right? If safe hits, do I hold the right MSOs? Do I hold enough of them, etc.? If safe doesn't hit, do I have a do I have a hedge? Right? What do I what am I looking for? Do I have things that will succeed? You know, even without safe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last thing, let's wrap it up. Um, we got a question from Mark K. Uh, this was about two weeks ago. Um, and Mark is asking, there was this thing that came up on on Twitter and it became really hot for like a minute. Um, and it was a question about, uh, I think, zero rated capital. Okay. And this is one of those things that gets like really big for like two days. <laughs> and then like everyone wants to know and then it sort of fades to the background. Okay. So we'll do our best here to kind of, uh, to chime in. Um, but basically, uh, the guys, the canalists who, you know, are, are often quite negative on MSOs. Um, and by the way, they get like a lot of flack for it online. Uh, personally, I like it. I, you know, my approach, Abby, as you know, is I'm always looking for like, what are we missing? What are we missing? So anybody who has something to say that could be negative, I'm happy to hear it. Right. I, I want to hear what we're missing. I want to hear a different opinion. Um, and, and I want to know, uh, hey, like, like, tell me what I'm missing here. Tell me how, uh, you know, tell me how I'm wrong, right? And they had, by the way, a, a while back, a really, really good uh, Q&A about how cannabis, if it goes legal, could end up being taxed like alcohol and how that could be really bad for verticality of the industry and taxation. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, they, they talk about interstate commerce, how it's inevitable. And, and I, by the way, thought that was a phenomenal thread that really did not get enough play. So, uh, you know, all respect to them for that. So zero rated capital, I guess in a nutshell, what they were saying is that the problem is that a lot of the MSOs have two different class of shares, right? So they have kind of, and this is, it varies by company, but they have what's called SVS and MVS. So SVS is like a common share, a single voting share. And then MVS is a multiple voting share, right? And we've talked about this before. The MVS shares are, you know, often used for control of the company. So if you look at you know the largest holders of the stock, the CEOs, the founders, they control a lot of MVS. So even if they only own 20% of the company, they can have the majority voting share so they can control the company. So um, I, I guess I'm not, I don't really understand the argument, honestly. I guess they said this is zero rated capital. I thought it related to you know maybe the, the debt not being rated by these companies, but that doesn't Zero rated capital, I don't think is a real term. I think they've invented it, which is which is fine. Um, but I just I asked some people, I Googled it, I couldn't find any information on it. Um, long story short, I guess the initial argument somebody proposed was this matters because people don't calculate it in the in the market cap of the company. Abby, I think you actually brought that up last episode about, you know, um, Yahoo Finance and Stockwatch don't calculate it when when you see it online. Zero rated capital or fully diluted share counts. Well, the, basically, they they don't they only calculate the SVS. Oh, so only right, the, right, the voting shares. No, they exclude. Not, yeah, yeah they, they exclude the multiple voting shares. Right, right. And so, like a company like Terrasen, for example, that had I can't remember the numbers now, but it had like two hundred and something million shares, but it had seventy million multiple voting shares. Right. So, 
when you look online, the market cap looks like it's you know only two thirds and not the whole market cap. Right, right, right. And this is actually pretty interesting because this this impacts more than just market cap in terms of valuation as well. It actually impacts who has say in the company. Right. Totally. Right, and that that could be that that's very interesting. And this was sorry, this was the uh, the, the Reddit post you're you're talking about. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, I, look, you know, your point's a good one, Abby. It, it goes to control, right? So you have to be comfortable with who's controlling the company. I mean, that's a that's a great point, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I would argue that when you look at the founders like Ben Kovler, like Kim Rivers, I mean, these people have been highly, highly aligned with shareholders. And they have delivered phenomenal value for their shareholders. So, you know, I, I think the flip side of the argument is I would feel pretty concerned if they didn't have control of the company, right? If we had to worry about a proxy fight or something weird like that, and, you know, they could be removed from the company, that mm-hmm. would make me more nervous than those guys being in charge because they've proven themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's something to be aware of. And the other thing, too, is some people are not aware of the fully diluted share account. Some people don't include those multiple voting shares in the total share account because they just check on Yahoo Finance. Huge mistake. Huge mistake, right? I mean, I was thinking about a metaphor for this and it's like, like imagine if you went to go buy a house, okay? And the house was three stories and each story was its own unit, all right? And you were paying a million dollars for the house. And when it came time to close, you know, you're like, oh, I'm so excited to have my three unit house. And the lawyer goes, whoa, whoa, sorry, sir. I, I didn't tell you. Um, you're only getting two units of the house for a million dollars. That third floor, that other unit, it's actually separately owned. And it's, you know, that actually trades, if you want to buy that, it's another half a million dollars. The whole house is 1.5 and you're only getting two thirds of it for a million. Gotcha. I don't think, I don't think you would walk away and say, well, you know, that's fine because the next guy buying, it's not going to realize the third floor is not included. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. You're going to say, what the hell is this? I have zero interest in doing this deal. I mean, maybe I'll buy the third floor too, but I want to reduce, or maybe I'll still do the two floors, but I'm not paying a million for it anymore, right? I want to reduce price. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think about, you know, the collapsible share structure. The other thing too is, remember, these US MSOs, when they went public, like years ago, they were trying to avoid being defined as US companies. They wanted to be Canadian companies because we didn't want the SEC to come snooping around and say, hey, you're an American company doing business in America, federally illegal, right? So the share structure they set up on the CSE was to be a Canadian company and to, you know, basically have these, like the the SVS shares were sort of the Canadian side and the MBS shares were the American side. And by, I I don't fully understand this, by the way, but, but by keeping the shares separate, they were able to avoid being a, I think it's called foreign issuer status, right? So they were able to be a Canadian company by doing that. Now they're going the other way, right? Now Ascend, for example, is SEC registered. All the other, you know, the big guys like TrueLeave and GTI have gone SEC registered in Gap Financials. So now that, you know, it's a little more, I mean, way more above board, now they're now companies are starting to, you know, go the other way and collapse their shares, right? And you saw Planet 13, for example, collapsed all their multiple voting shares into one class of shares. So I think the industry is heading that way anyway. Um, yes, you should totally be aware of fully diluted share count. Uh, I, I don't know. I read a follow-up post and I, I honestly, I just couldn't understand it. So maybe I'm just not smart enough to get it. But uh, if it ever gets updated and there's a update as to why it's zero rated capital, uh, I'd be glad to revisit it. Uh, but so far, I don't see anything in here that really scares me, right? So um, 
be aware of the fully diluted share count, but I don't see how this capital structure is a huge issue, but maybe I'm missing something. Yeah, you know what? I've never even heard that term zero rated capital. I think you're right. It must have been coined. Uh, it, it's definitely something worth looking into. Yeah, I mean, like, and and the idea that, like, you know, for, they mentioned, like, TrueLeave and the fact that TrueLeave had a bunch of equity, quote unquote, walk out the door. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't get it, right? Like, if you... Like somebody redeemed, like someone inside yeah, sold or something. No, it wasn't even selling. It was just converting from super to from the super shares to the regular shares. So I, I don't know. Like again, I I don't get it. Right? Like what's the? I don't get the big deal. I mean, maybe you can argue that hey, if if that founder converts all that stock and starts dumping it, you got a problem. Mm-hmm. And I go, yeah. If Kim River starts dumping her stock, we do have a problem, right? I mean, that's yeah. That's I, I don't think that'll happen. <laughs> well, I, I don't think so either, right? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, these people have proven that they have the investors' best interests aligned with them. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't get it, right? That's that's why I'm kind of saying, um, yeah, I I don't get it. And by the way, this is in other industries too. I mean, I think people have brought up Zuckerberg uses these kind of shares to control Facebook, even though he doesn't own the majority of Facebook. So. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess important to know and understand fully diluted share accounts. Maybe I'm not seeing um, why it's a big issue, but you know, if it ever gets updated, we'll revisit it and we'll try to keep an open mind. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think I don't know. From you know, obviously, I haven't read read the post, but just from talking, hearing you talk about it, I think it's really just a way for owners to retain ownership within the company, but yet still raise capital by giving out equity. Right. That's yeah, that's ma- the way that I look at it. Right. Maintain control, and also like we have to remember there. When, when these companies were first made, there was a dual class of shares, right? There was like, it was a bit of a game to avoid uh, oversight from the SEC because this was federally illegal, still is federally illegal, but it's just, we've just kind of progressed beyond it, right? So you're mm-hmm. seeing people collapse their their share structures. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it ha- doesn't seem to have been a big issue. Like P13 did it. They're not selling. Like we would see if they sold. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I'm with you. Abby, any last thoughts on our uh, post MJ Biz debrief? Oh man, there's 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 a lot, but we covered a lot of it in here. Um, one of my biggest takeaways, I'd say, from MJ Biz, well, a first, it was amazing to get back out there um, to see everybody. There's a lot of people, like I said, that I met on Zoom and re-met them in person. Um, but uh, no, I think my biggest takeaway from this is, you know get really into the weeds of it, get to know who you're sitting across, ask much, much, much better questions, and really try to understand the why, right? And I think I think you said it the best here in a couple of times, am I the sucker in the room? Um, and in most rooms, I am the sucker. So, am I- <laughs> <laughs> so in my in my situation is A, how do I not be the sucker? Or B, how do I leave the room, right? So it's... Uh- <laughs> I would say that that those are my biggest takeaways. And, you know, this was a very action packed episode and it was good. You know, I, like for, for those that, that don't know, Manisha and I haven't seen each other in a while. So it's good to see you as well, too. You know, you're looking, oh, thank uh, you, Abby. Yeah, nice your beard's see- looking really nice and trim. Oh, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. You know, it was nice to only be the second biggest sucker in the room for a while. <laughs> All right, guys, that's the episode. CIN podcast at gmail.com. It was so nice to see the people that we saw. Thank you guys for reaching out and meeting up until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. 
none of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.